The font is back, baby. America's fun aunt. I'm also America's cool aunt. The co- you know what? Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics 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 Podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. That was Saturday Night Live's portrayal of Kamala Harris as portrayed by Maya Rudolph. And it's going to dovetail into what we're going to talk about today, because not only is there Kamala Harris news out, I mean, God damn this woman's campaign. They sure love talking to reporters about how bad this campaign is. Oh, my God. You know, we had an article a, a, a few weeks ago from Politico that I thought was like a death knell. I mean, it was a campaign obituary before the campaign has died. And then the New York Times does their own version with more people on the record, which is just crazy. So anyway, we're also going to have an interview about Saturday Night Live and how they have handled presidential candidate and presidential impressions. We're also going to cover the New Hampshire ad assault by Tom Steyer. We're going to catch up with our buddy, Governor Camp from Georgia. And why all of the 2020 Democrats should live in trembling fear of Baby Yoda. But first, let's talk about this Kamala Harris story. So by and large, this article is kind of a rehash of what we read in Politico a few weeks ago, meaning that the campaign is very disorganized. There's very obviously a rift between the campaign manager, Juan Rodriguez, and Kamala Harris's sister, who is the chairwoman of the campaign. And you would think that the political article, which was by and large staffed by people that you would guess were sympathetic to the sister, that this would maybe be the answer from Juan Rodriguez, but it really kind of paints everybody as just totally out of touch and in no way being able to put their finger on exactly what the point of this campaign is. It also includes a resignation letter by a state operations director, Kelly Mellenbacher, in which she says that this is my third presidential campaign and I've never seen an organization treat its staff so poorly. So the chairwoman gets dunked on. The campaign manager gets dunked on. The candidate gets dunked on. Hell, the social media team, the communications team gets dunked on. With people from inside the campaign saying that for all of Kamala Harris saying that Twitter should take away Trump's account, that they really wish that the Twitter accounts of their communications team would be taken away. This is the very definition of a circular firing squad. But there is some good information in here. As you remember, when we first took a look at Kamala Harris, how she wins and how she loses, in every successful campaign that she's run, her best position is law and order liberal. You can't come out of the positions that she has held without being a, I'm going to keep the peace and I'm going to reform it so it is better serving its populace. 
if you run on that, then everything that you touch has to go through that prism. It has to be about how we are uh, enforcing our laws. It has to be about what laws we should be creating or enforcing. It has to be about how we treat people in prison. It has to be about everything that interacts from government to citizen. If you don't run on that, then what is the point, honestly? In fact, I am backed up here by the Breakfast Club's Charlemagne the God. In his own words, she should lean into it. She should say, I'm a prosecutor and Donald Trump is a criminal and I'm going to lock his ass up. Well, thank you, Charlemagne. You indeed avoid the donkey of the day. But here's what should worry fans of Kamala Harris. And this is where, if you really want to read the tea leaves, this is where they spell doom for Harris for the people. Again, like the Politico article, there is an explicit mention that Harris needs to drop out before the new year. That way, her name would not appear on the ballot in California, avoiding what is almost certainly going to be a tremendous blowout loss for a sitting senator from the Golden State. And if that's the case, and it's been mentioned in Politico, it's been mentioned in the New York Times, that means this is not just somebody floating an idea. This is a legitimate line of thought, and we find out a little bit why that might be the case. Apparently, Kamala Harris is worried that in 2022, if she's going to run for her Senate seat again, which you would assume she will, that she would face a primary challenge from Tom Steyer. He's got a lot of money. And if Tom Steyer does better than Kamala Harris in that California primary, which there is a very good chance he might, then that is absolute fuel for that fire. So it's better Kamala gets out, endorses somebody, and now she's a star surrogate in her own state, leading a successful charge, than to watch her crash and burn while a future foe looks on. Quite simply, friends, I know that we have now turned the page from Thanksgiving, and it is indeed Christmas time. But the bells that toll for Kamala Harris might sound a little bit more like this. All right, before we get into our interview, I do want to remind you guys that you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can support this program. Sign up for a $3 uh, level, and you get two bonus podcasts. Of course, you get bonus podcasts for anything above that as well. And this is the time to do it. 
because the bonus stuff is only going to get more important as we start to rev up the news cycle past the holidays and I start to hit the road. I'm going to be in Iowa. I'm going to be in Nevada. I'm going to be in California. Well, I already am in California. I am going to be in Florida. And I'll tell you what, with your guys' help, I could also go to New Hampshire, South Carolina, and so much more. But to do that, I got to have money. And if you'd like to give me money, well, you can go ahead and do that at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Also, a reminder, Tuesday, Tuesday, December 3rd, that is when you and everyone you know should be subscribing to the feed for my brand new history podcast, Raise the Dead. Go ahead and get it done. All right, let's go ahead and get into our interview. Our guest today is Matt Sinkowitz. He is an associate professor of communication and international studies at Boston College. We talk all about how Saturday Night Live plays a role in presidential campaigns. And Matt joins us right now. Matt, welcome to the show. No, thanks for having me, Justin. All right. Now, this is a a, a, listeners know one of my fascinations is is political comedy. And uh, there is really no higher peak for that in our culture than Saturday Night Live. You are the expert on the subject. So let's start here. Uh, in, 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 in the history of Saturday Night Live covering politicians and, and politics, uh, where, I guess, what, what, is, what is the beginning of that? What is the genesis of that? Well, the first uh, the sort of uh, marker of that is, is Chevy Chase uh, as Gerald Ford. Um, and uh, sort of an interesting uh, and very strange portrayal that he put forth. Uh, for one, he made just no effort of impression uh, whatsoever. Uh, it's just he just basically says he's Gerald Ford, and then he tripped a lot. That was kind of the yeah. the main marker that identified him as Ford. And, and in fact, that, that does seem to have uh, made an impact on Ford's legacy insofar as he's thought of as a clumsy guy. Uh, which uh, is debatable. Uh, he was a great athlete when he was younger, and it's sort of sort of a strange way uh, uh, to remember him. It kind of sort of takes aspects of his kind of uh, speech pattern and turns it into a physicality. Uh, I think that's probably what most people uh, think of when they think of the genesis of this. Uh, but uh, that is to say it starts from day one, essentially. right? SNL uh, is uh, looking at politics uh, very early on. I would say it goes through different iterations and how it does it, but it's, but it's been part of the show from the start. So that that is fascinating, though, because... If you look at a very abstract impression like that, which kind of uses a a, a weird uh, reflection to kind of reflect, uh, I guess you know that that Gerald Ford was maybe not totally put together or or was yeah, unsure of himself, yeah. right? Yeah, like that's what I've I've kind of found interesting with the SNL impressions because some are these very abstract like characters. Yeah. And some are kind of in the in the Daryl Hammond uh, uh, mold, like just gifted mimics doing right. uh, really, really accurate sort of impressions. So let's let's go ahead and uh, uh, talk through a few of them. Uh, to me, sure. my favorite of all time is uh, uh, Dana Carvey, uh, just for many, many reasons. Mm. I mean, cast members specifically, but also his George H.W. Bush. And that, I think, would, would really fall into the caricature uh, side of it, yeah. right? Absolutely. 
Uh, so yeah, but, no, that go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I was just gonna uh, <laughs> ask you about what, where uh, you know some of the interesting elements of that uh, character. Yeah, no, the Carvey one is interesting. And Carvey, uh, the way I would I would frame that is that Carvey was was just famous for his character work broadly. Right. And he had this stable of characters. I mean, most famously, like the church lady, and uh, these these characters that uh, sort of filled out this world of Dana Carvey. And uh, the, the George H.W. Bush uh, portrayal sort of uh, it fit into that world in a really interesting way, because on the one hand, I mean, sure, it's a political portrayal. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is a, it's actually a fairly gentle uh, uh, parody that he's putting forth. Uh, but what I really enjoyed about it is he really kind of took Bush, I think it is abstract in a way, and that it takes him and puts him into this world of Dana Carvey characters uh, and uh, sort of uh, uh, sets him up like one level removed from the politics as such, right? Yeah. I mean, the church lady uh, uh, represents a certain kind of politics too, but it's caricatured out. I think that the Bush impression sort of acknowledges that it's doing something similar. It's taking a real life phenomenon, obviously, the actual president of the United States, uh, but it really is it's sort of winking at the fact that it, it's a character being put on by this gifted character creator, uh, and it, it's willing to take some, some distance between uh, the portrayal and uh, sort of a sort of biting kind of reality uh, critique. It, it puts some space in there, which is uh, interesting and really makes it a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you could question whether or not that kind of cuts some of the satire politically, but it certainly, uh, as art, makes it really interesting. So that gets us into a very, very interesting element of this entire conversation, which is the point of these impressions. Yeah. And it seems hotly debated on whether or not mm -hmm. these should be just a reflection of a common truth that we all know. Obviously, as Americans, you're aware of who the president is. You see a lot of the president. The actions of the president affect your life. And so, therefore, we all have this preamble. Or is it there to speak truth to power? Like, should there be right. some kind of commentary on that? Uh, uh, do you have an opinion there? Like, is there a right way to eat a Reese's here? Mm. Well, the first thing is to, to separate the is from the ought, right, from from the what it is and then maybe what it could be or should be. And the first thing to say is what the point is, is to is to sell advertising. Yes. Right? The point <laughs> is to attract viewers. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's like it's kind of an obvious truth, but you never want to take your eye off that if you're trying to be critical about media. And so when you look at it from that perspective, what is the president except a really big celebrity? Yeah. Right. A, a a person that you would expect every viewer would recognize, have some sort of interest in uh, and be uh, willing to give a chance to, uh, for a sketch about. Right. So to see if it see, see where it goes. Right. Because they're going to they're going to know the opening premise, uh, which has always been a, a challenge for comedians. Right. To figure out what's an entry point that a lot of people can get into. And I mean, these days, as celebrity gets like sliced up into smaller and smaller pieces, right? And uh, there are fewer and fewer uh, references that sort of everybody gets. Uh, you know, politicians uh, play that role even more so. So first thing to say is that, you know, its function is to have a cultural reference that enough people will get to give the sketch a chance and potentially get some momentum. In terms of what it ought to do, I mean, uh, you know, certainly uh, if you ask people who do political comedy, you know, they're not going to just tell you they're there to try to sell ads, right? They're going to say that they've yeah. got a point to make. And, uh, you know, I think that that is a little bit of evidence on its own, right? Everybody who writes this stuff will tell you that they're trying to drive it something, something deeper. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think it, it plays a crucial role uh, in terms of our discourse uh, in that, uh, you know, there's generally, I guess we see some of these norms changing, but there's been fairly strict boundaries historically about how we talk about politicians. Right, what's in bounds, what's not. 
And uh, if you want to push at those, move to the edges of those, uh, bring up stuff that otherwise kind of wasn't allowed, comedy was a great way to do that, right? to introduce these concepts through kind of a side door. Um, I, our discourse has changed, and I think that actually has changed the way that, that political comedy has to function. But historically, um, you know, there's that limited window of sort of acceptable ways to talk politics, and that's limiting, and that uh, uh, is something that needs to be constantly pushed and, and uh, you know, SNL, even if it's doing it for the money, was able to sort of push uh, the things you could talk about about a president and, and put into the discourse uh, and get people talking about. So I think there is a, that positive function, even though these days that gets complicated. So let's let's move into another impression that obviously became very, very famous, but I think illustrates some of the tortured element of this dichotomy. And that is Will Ferrell's mm. George W. Bush. Uh, mm. He of intensely popular impression, uh, you know, a great example of of Will Ferrell's energy, and yet there there seems mm. to be both from Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who wrote those sketches, a, a little bit of a consternation that, unlike Dana Carvey, who seemed to eventually like strike up a friendship with the actual George H. W. Bush, that they feel culpable that they made George W. Bush into a more yeah. likable frat guy, affable sort of character. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lovable impression. Yes. Right? That is a, it's not necessarily loving. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's what they're, they're worried about, but it's lovable. Like it creates that the outcome ultimately uh, is just a guy you really want to hang out with. Right. Like uh, he's yeah. a goofball. He might say some dumb stuff, but like uh, there's a harmlessness in it. Right, that uh, that that is is emphasized uh, in the port in the portrayal, uh, and there's just a a sort of a magnetism, right? I mean, it's a it's a it's Will Ferrell. It's 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 actually some of Will Ferrell's best uh, sort of uh, performative elements, right? The uh, uh, sort of a weird relatability, yeah. uh, a an, abil an ability to do sort of a non sequitur and have it uh, somehow kind of it doesn't make sense logically, but it does make sense like uh, in some sort of gut way, right? Ferrell is great at that, and like people who like Bush would sort of, you know, speak in those terms too, right? He kind of makes you feel it in the gut in a positive way. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the problem of course, uh, as they're alluding to is that all that lovability is just about him as a person and nothing about him as a president, right? None yeah. of the, uh, none of these factors come through in policy politics, uh, particularly, uh, you know, I'm sure they're thinking primarily about, uh, about the, uh, the, the war on terror, uh, both domestically and internationally. And, uh, you know, the, this lovability, you could see an angle to take that comedy and really emphasize the, uh, the ways in which it's, uh, there's contradiction. They didn't really do that. I, I would point back maybe to uh, uh, there's a, one of my favorite sketches, a great one to, to look up in this area, uh, is Phil Hartman as Reagan, a sketch called Reagan Mastermind. Mastermind, yeah, classic. And, yeah, it's it's a, it's a classic, and, and, and it's kind of what I would say Farrell didn't do, or at least in my recollection didn't do. So the, the Reagan mastermind sketch, uh, it starts off with Reagan as this kind of folksy, you know, like uh, doesn't know too much, kind of kind of a fun grandfather. I think he's like, he's like, he's like greeting a, a boy or Girl Scouts or something like that, like in yeah, the Oval Office, like doing yeah, one yeah. of those like very fuzzy photo ops. Yeah, you're right. And then and then felt kind of like, oh, oh shucks. And again, you know, he's being kind. And then everybody walks out of the room and he becomes this like hard edged guy talking about the Contras or what I can't remember the exact. But, you know, the idea yeah. is that uh, the joke is that, uh, you know, that we treat him so so 
unseriously, but you know, whether or not he's actually a mastermind, serious stuff is going on. There's real issues of corruption. There's issues of uh, what the U.S. is doing across the world. And it shows that as like a dichotomy in a way that, that is both funny, kind of makes fun of Reagan as a character, but also, you know, no, it's the guy is the president and the decisions he makes really matter. And you can make an argument that McKay and Farrell never quite do that to Bush, right? They never quite take his folksiness and, uh, and really pinpoint the, the sort of damage that can come from it and try to draw comedy from that kind of darker element. Uh, I can't remember every sketch they ever did, but certainly the general impression left on the, on the uh, uh, people who, who watched the, the one-man show that he did and watched the sketches, it's much fuzzier. And you kind of forget that he's you know, uh, involved in these uh, uh, sort of uh, incredible and uh, very questionable uh, wars and, and uh, domestic policies. Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting, and and that mastermind sketch I think very much holds up because it has the it has both elements to it. There is a political commentary. Yeah. Reagan is more dangerous than we assume, right? That is that is right. the message, yeah. and then the mm-hmm. the comedy is in the 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 zero to sixty nature of like oh folksy, yeah. and now all of a sudden he's this different person. But mm-hmm. the 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 W sketch or the W sketches to me and then the the kind of public hand wringing by both Farrell and McKay of regret that they feel that they personally reelected him or they gave him this like different view uh, in in the the eyes of Americans I think fundamentally changes SNL and specifically the impressions mm. that kind of come after there uh mm. because the next big one is Sarah Palin with uh, Tina Fey yeah. and and that is a, a, an extraordinarily famous character yes. but yeah I I don't know if it really has the kind of character work that the predecessors oh, yeah that the predecessors did yeah and it kind of ushers in this new era of let's just get a famous person because she was off the show at that point and comes back to do it uh let's yeah. get a famous person to just repeat what the people said on TV this yeah, week. Uh, yes. Stenographic comedy. Yes. Right? Where, where it's, uh, it's just repeating, right. It's literally a transcript. Um, no, that's right. And I, I think you're right. I mean, the, I think in general, we can look at sort of nine 11 and the post nine 11 response as being a transitionary period for SNL. And, uh, that early, those, those W impressions being them trying to sort of sort it out, I mean, Palin's a unique case in a number of ways. Yes. Uh, one, I mean, absolutely, as you point to, they're not writing jokes, right? They're yeah. just uh, they're just repeating her. Uh, it, it's a unique case in some ways, although I think you're right to point at it as transitionary. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, um, it's rare that somebody would so uh, would, would become part of the national discourse so quickly without having a narrative uh, built around her already. Um, you know, it was a, a unique opportunity for uh, of SNL uh, for SNL to, to set an agenda here, uh, because generally people who end up on the big big stage and are SNL worthy, they've got a long history of people kind of knowing who they are. And Sarah Palin said the history was really really short. So one, you get sort of a disproportionate potential impact uh, on uh, individual uh, portrayals. And the second thing is that, yeah, they, they take this approach, which I do think is informed by the Bush experience of, uh, you know, not uh, not treating folksy politicians uh, who they think are, are potentially dangerous uh, lightly. Right. And uh, so they're going to they're going to you know, they're going to go at her hard. They're not going to uh, uh, sort of fall into that same trap. Uh, but the, this opportunity, because she is such a ridiculous character and yes. she is ridiculous at a, at 
every le- level, uh, this opportunity to just be stenographic, to just repeat the lines and have that be sort of the joke. Um, it is really successful. I mean, they've got the perfect performer for it, Tina Fey. Uh, it's not a character work of any kind like that H.W. Bush. It's a sort of a, it's not even much of an impression, really. I mean, there's, a, there's some voice work in there, but mostly it's about sort of, uh, uh, sort of physical appearance. Uh, they put this out there. It's a unique opportunity. It works. And you could argue that they overlearn the lesson, right? That they, <laughs> they yeah. take too much from this really <laughs> weird example and then start trying to repeat it in a way that's not going to uh, necessarily have the same punch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then that leads into Obama, which I don't feel that they never mm. really got a handle on at all. Like that they were was terrified. Yeah, that, that was, was that was just something that for eight years, really yeah. the the crown jewel of political comedy, the the SNL impression yeah. that had such a rich legacy coming out of George W. Bush, it was just a hot potato of you know a really yeah. really gifted comedians sort of staring into the camera and just sort of talking. <laughs> It was a mess. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that I think that uh, there's a number of reasons for it. I think that Obama is, a, you know, a difficult character to, to get around um, in a number of ways. But I mean, first, the sort of Fred Armisen experiment uh, has not aged well. Right. That's not something that's not something you would see uh, anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, specifically in the skin darkening. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's almost, you know, I mean, the, these, the, these, these mores change, but that one, uh, even at the time, that was not, that was not the kind of thing where you look back 50 years and go, oh, things have changed. That was like, even at the moment, it's like, wow, that is, seems like a, seems like a, a, a bold move there that they might. They might I mean, think I think uh, it, it is, um, it is, it is instructive to remember that we were closer to Jimmy Fallon doing blackface to impre- to impersonate Chris Rock yeah. uh, than we are to yeah. the modern era when, when it comes to Armis and no, Obama. No, that's, that's 100% right. Nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I remember it being a point of conversation from day one. Um, you know, people look at oh. it and say, okay, all right. This is, I mean, um, look, yeah. Is, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so this, speaking, this, speaking this, of Feral, like... drew some attention. Yeah, I mean... Uh, they were also closer to like the coconut bangers ball sketch with uh, Robert Goulet, yeah. which is something that I we would never right. see in our modern no. era. No, you wouldn't get that. Yeah, no, that's right. So anyway, there's that, and then they ultimately basically settle on Jay Faro uh, doing a bang up impression with not a lot of bite, right? Yeah, yeah. really doing a, a, a rich little uh, sort of uh, you know straight up really ta- an incredibly talented mimic, like a uncanny, uh, amazing mimic, but uh, but not a lot there. Yeah, I mean, in that period, if I'm, you know, uh, I remember from that period a lot of attempts to return to that stenographic kind of comedy. I remember the, uh, I remember the, the Joe Wilson, the congressman who yelled out "You lie" in the middle yeah. of a, of a, of a, and so they just did a sketch where basically they had a Sudeikis uh, just yell that out, and then like that was kind of mostly the bit, and then they kind of just explained it in the background. These are all attempts to kind of go back to that Sarah Palin. Uh, you know, sort of what's in the news. Let's say the thing that was in the news. We'll, we'll make some effort to like make it seem funnier than it is. But the real point is to point to the outrageous, right? Point yeah. to the ridiculous. Um, which, on the one hand, you can kind of appreciate. On the other, how much do I need? Uh, how much do I need? Uh, you know, uh, to to uh, have uh, something other than the news do that when I when I'm if I'm following the news, and if I'm not following the news, why would I care? Like it's a little bit kind of uh, limiting what their what their capabilities are. And that brings us, of course, to our modern era, yeah. and it's it's a fascinating one because 
Donald Trump has been a character on Saturday Night Live for decades yeah, at this point, right? Uh, he's yeah. been played by many, many people, up to and including probably most famously before the presidency, Daryl Hammond. Uh, yeah. And now, I mean, I don't even know. I'm not a fan, and and uh, I've kind of derisively referred to it as just sort of like it's like kind of high school skit night, but with celebrities, yeah. where where it's just there's not really an impression. The comedy just seems mostly to be, man, wouldn't Donald Trump be mad if he watched this? Like, uh, I, yeah. I don't, I don't really get it. It's that's really stunty, right? It's like it, it, it all feels like sort of a. It it all feels like a end of the season stunt cast moment yeah. where you would bring in Robert De Niro or you know you name it. I can't even list all the, the sort of various characters they brought in. Yeah, I mean it, it almost seems like uh, self parody. I wish I could push back on you more, but I, I have a very similar uh, <laughs> reaction to this, and that it's uh, again another maybe overlearned lesson, right? Uh, you know they did really well during the 2016 news cycle um, because. Everybody did well during the 2016 news cycle. Yeah. Right. The the appetite for uh, political media and political comedy was just through the roof. Uh, you know, the Alec Baldwin thing worked. Right. And, uh, you know, we could we could talk about its strengths and weaknesses. It was certainly sufficient for the moment. It had its, it had some virtues. Uh, but it worked in part because it just had an incredible uh, tailwind. Right. It was uh, the, the the interest in that sector. Right. It was just going crazy. And so it worked. And it's very hard to change off of a pattern that has worked, um, you know, until it stops working. I think that the numbers that we see now uh, in terms of ratings are pretty clear that it's not working, at least not working nearly the way it was. Um, you know, it, it, there's, it seems like it's inertia to a certain extent. Yeah. In terms of where the comedy comes from, I, I think you're making a nice point in that uh, the audience of one is really apparent. Right. The audience of Donald Trump and, and uh, you know, he seems to be reacting less to it. But certainly they got a lot of good reactions. And then it becomes a really meta form of comedy where, you know, you're watching it to watch Alec Baldwin with the thought of what Trump is doing when he sees it. And you're laughing it in your head at what Trump is doing. Yes. Right? Yeah. This, you are. You're, you're, shot of yeah, comedy. you're your guffawing comes from the idea that Donald Trump would have his feelings hurt. Which is like, yeah, just a a fascinating point of popular culture. No, it is. It's really this remarkable thing, and it, and it does show how much the Trump is a, is a character in our in our own you know, sort of uh, plays, right, in our own minds. Uh, and it, it it really speaks to the power of Trump to the extent that he's able to insert himself in your psyche, yeah, uh, in such a such an intimate, weird way. Um, and that that to me does seem like the play. That does seem where the the comedy is coming from. Uh, I think when you look at the actual content, it it, it sort of goes back and forth between uh, the scenography, uh, sort of just repeating kind of what happened, and then uh, cartoon, uh, which uh, on the one hand is, is interesting, but uh, it's it doesn't. Neither of those forms uh, are a place to sort of really develop kind of uh, jokes as art, right? Uh, sort of uh, more subtle or layered forms of comedy are not really likely in that context. Um, you know, uh, it goes back to, you know, when we started our conversation, what's the point of this? You know, the point is to, is to sell ads, right? The point is yeah. to bring in eyeballs and they, you know, they really, this worked. I mean, it really worked. And, and to be honest, you know, they've got a pretty good crack at it in 2020. And from a business perspective, you know, this strategy, uh, which you could argue is, is probably more attractive to kind of non 
SNL fans in some ways are more uh, casual SNL fans. The strategy of just sort of being uh, very political in, a, in an obvious way uh, worked in 2016. It brought in people who weren't watching the show otherwise. Probably it'll work in 2020 similarly. And so we kind of suffer through this uh, hammock in the middle uh, where the jokes aren't so inspired, but we keep the momentum. We kind of train ourselves for when the news cycle is back in our favor and we take a big bite out of the, the 2020 ratings. Uh, that's what I think is happening there. I agree. The show is, to me, uh, fairly dull at the moment. And uh, that's kind of maybe because, you know, we we've, it seems like the same story over and over again. We've got a Groundhog Day politics <laughs> going on as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's only so much, you know, the, 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 the sketch premise can be, oops, now they're definitely going to get yep. it. Oops. Oh, I guess they didn't. But the point is never like, oh, that they're always going to get out. The point is, no, hmm. for real. Now the walls are closing in. I will say no. that that the bright spot of all this is Kate McKinnon, who I think is, yeah. is tremendously yeah. talented. And I really Yeah, Hall en- of Famer. Yeah, I yeah, agree. And I really enjoyed her Hillary Clinton because I did think that that was obviously a character. She was, you know, portraying yeah. a heightened, ridiculous version of Hillary uh that played onto some essential truths that we kind of uh, inherently sort of glom on from her public persona. Uh, and, and I'm interested in her, in her Elizabeth Warren, but what what's yeah. kind of fascinating is that especially post 2016 in that famous, yeah. you know, Dave Chappelle hosted uh, episode, yep. you know, it opens with her playing hallelujah. <laughs> like there's this, this yeah. very solemn, uh, uh, it's very po- it's like it's like the post 9-11 episode yeah 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 it, it, it is it is just this I, I don't know I, I I guess like obviously SNL we never want SNL to not be a kind of nakedly political show because like you mentioned it from its earliest incarnations that's kind of what set it apart but mm-hmm. uh, it, it's I, I just hope that as she moves forward with this Elizabeth Warren character and yeah. we'll see where Elizabeth Warren goes that she doesn't lose the bite like I, 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 I'm leery. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I agree. Um, it, the it, well, it, it relates to your Will Ferrell comment, but kind of in in reverse. Yeah. Right. The the fear with the with the Ferrell and McKay is that they took the gloves. Uh, they left, they left the gloves on. Right. That they uh, that they uh, softened up a guy who should have been taken more seriously. Uh, of course, you could. I mean, I think it's probably giving SNL far too much credit. I agree. <laughs> You could, you could, you could, but you could see an inverse reaction saying like, "Oh, we should have treated her. We should, we shouldn't have emphasized her her foibles so clearly." Particularly given, you know, it, it does get complicated, right? Because she had these incredible unlike unlikeability ratings, and there's this absolute gender, you know, sort of misogyny that's underwriting them. Yeah. Could our comedic, comedic portrayals have uh, sort of amplified those waves? You know, uh, you know, maybe uh, I don't know. I, I, again, I think that's probably a little bit much in terms of crediting, but you could see a reaction against it. As of now, the Warren portrayal is utterly toothless. Um, uh, as I have seen, I mean, I'm thinking most of the cold open from a few weeks back. Yeah, uh, they're basically she's basically portraying uh, Warren as a uh, as a, somebody who's like kind of uh, been dropped into Wonderland or something, right? She's the same person in the land of the insane, uh, and her what's what's made to be funny is that her uh, her reasonableness is is uh, reacted to unreasonably. Um, 
there, there are other elements of it where they're maybe kind of, you know, they're poking at her wonkishness a little bit. And uh, uh, they're poking at, you know, it's a fun bit at the beginning when uh, when McKinnon comes on with Warren and talks about how she ate some, you know, she ate like uh, some apple slices and she's all amped up, right? Like sort of the, the, the a little joke about the Warren energy, uh, yeah. the energy she puts forward. But these are like, these are soft. And then the... When you when you actually watch that cold opening with Warren from a few weeks ago, it was just like a pretty good campaign ad. Right? It was like a pretty good like she's got a plan for it kind of uh, thing, and and uh, you know uh, that that does not make for great comedy. And uh, there's there's absolutely some layer of uh, not wanting to uh, fall into maybe traps they felt they fell into with Clinton. Uh, whether or not they did, I guess is up to that's uh, uh, more of a, of a judgment call. Yeah, yeah, you know it, it's it's fascinating because. There was a moment at the beginning of that sketch where I thought the premise was going to be that, like, okay, the Warren character is a, like, open mic night stand-up comedian who's yeah. kind of bombing yeah. but keeps sort of pulling it back. And I thought that was, an, that was like, an interesting mm. kind of character choice. And yeah, then it just sort of devolved. <laughs> yeah, and then it just sort of devolved into talking points. And it's like... Oh, yeah. okay. So I guess we're we're really just we're just going to apologize for the fact that the Hillary Clinton character was good. No, yeah, no. I think that that. I mean, look, it's early, and yeah. uh, and they're they're trying stuff out, and you know, this is the uh, you know SNL always gets a bump going into a presidential election, and this one, uh, there's no reason to think it should be different. Uh, you know, I guess the media environment's more diffuse, but but you know, they'll find their place. There's you know, there's some hope that they'll find it but one suspects i mean there, there is another uh sin that we haven't brought up right which is bringing uh-huh. trump on to yes. snl mid-campaign i mean and not uh, not and, not just but, in a cameo hosting an entire yeah, episode hosting. <laughs> yeah you know hosting it and hosting it in a way i mean speaking of uh of feral sort of softening up on bush i mean like a, an utterly like the silly portrayal of trump like a real uh uh first first fun of uh uh, the idea that uh, people think he's a racist and then just completely uh, 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 turning him into just like a silly, harmless character. And, you know, th- this is something that they will uh, probably I mean, this this will be in the story of SNL forever. I think that uh, uh, they portrayed a lot of their their core uh, uh, viewership with it in an attempt to expand viewership in a direction that they probably weren't going to get anyway. In any case, uh, you've got that baggage. You've got the Clinton baggage. If we've got a Warren Trump matchup, I, I not, I don't have a lot of hope for uh, inspired uh, sort of fighting <laughs> comedy when it comes to the Warren portrayal. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and it's it's funny because I don't think it necessarily has to be destructive, right? Like, no, not at all. Like, yeah, no, I mean, you can not. you can actually just do but, a but, character. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing about comedy, right? Comedy is is uh, it has it, it, it what makes why why so many of us love it, right? Is that it embeds multiple meanings at once, right? And uh, it is if you if you if you try to really make it funny, uh, it could have it could be great comedy. It could actually make a really good kind of uh, argument for Warren, even while being funny. But if you really try to make it funny, it's going to have to include the possibility for misunderstanding. Right. And that's just the fundamental nature of, of comedy. Uh, a, a joke doesn't work if some people, if, if everybody gets the joke, it's not a good joke. Right? Yeah. Everybody is, is sort of following it. So you make a good joke, even if it's a joke that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, points in the politics they like. Uh, there's going to be a, a sizable chunk of people who don't get it, who focus on the wrong thing. It's dangerous. And hopefully they're just not afraid 
of uh, you know a little bit of that kind of runoff misinterpretation uh, and and avoid making you know sort of a, a tougher, more interesting portrayal uh, of Warren. Who, as I think you noted, there are angles to take, and those angles wouldn't be offensive by any means. Uh, but there's a risk whenever you whenever you really try to tell a joke, you take a risk. And uh, SNL has has been bit a few times uh, in in how they've portrayed that, at least in their own minds, so, over the last few years. And that's the thing is that it's like, you know, like to, to go back to the H.W. Bush, Carvey's H.W. Bush, it's like the real uh, man worked his entire career to be this sort of bloodless patrician. And then he's portrayed <laughs> as a spastic nerd. And it's like, OK, yeah. well, that's funny. Like, that's just a funny thing yeah. is there's an element where we're like, yeah, he's probably like that. He's probably more like that than the yeah. guy that we see. Uh Oh, I don't know. Uh, all right, you mentioned the idea of uh, people coming on and and camo uh, cameo uh, cameoing as themselves uh, after, especially when a character kind of takes off. Uh, what, in in your opinion, is either your favorite or the most impactful of those cameos? Of of uh, politicians coming politicians on coming or, on or... to to confront huh. their character version. You know, I mean, I, I we've, we've mentioned it a little bit, but I, I quite like the uh, the bar talk sketch with uh, McKinnon talking to Clinton. I really, I thought that was, I thought that was really good. Yeah, it's just, it's really good. I mean, it really, uh, I mean, for one, because because McKinnon impression, as you know, is is really good. It was complicated. It was, it was sort of just off kilter, Hillary. Um, you, you know, you put them in conversation. Uh, that's good. Clinton actually, I think, you know, she plays a part there in an interesting uh, way. Um, you know, I. I I thought that she was pretty good. I thought that that was something that sort of uh, uh, was able to flesh her out much more so than kind of like Obama just showing up at the Halloween party kind of thing. Um, you know, it's not often that uh, that you'll you'll get a, a high level politician doing some work in terms of the the portrayal. And Clinton does. I mean, she 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 rehearsed that thing and it came out uh, I think pretty well. So at least in recent memory, that's the one that sticks out and it's it's worth rewatching. It's, it's also very strange retrospectively. Uh, just kind of going back in that period of time and seeing the uh, the attitudes about Clinton and Trump and what they're what they're talking about in terms of uh, of uh, you know uh, what the matchup uh, should be about and what it ends up being about. So so I think I would highlight that, uh, which is available to go go rewatch. And I think maybe instructive if we look at uh, what what could Warren do if if uh, in fact she is uh, you know still on the scene and and, uh, and uh, you know I, I would be interested in a reprisal of seeing something similar to that with the kid and Warren. Uh, interacting and seeing seeing where it goes. Yeah, and I think what makes that sketch work is inherently, again, it's it's the universal truth. We want to know what's going on inside Hillary's mind because she's very yeah, guarded right. and she doesn't talk a lot about uh, the stuff and the stuff she does talk about seems very triangulated. So it's like, wh yeah. who do we want? We want Hillary to talk to Hillary when they feel like they're alone. And that's a cool premise. Yeah. I think that's why that, that, that sketch succeeds. No, I, I got to stew. I think that's right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, again, our guest has been Matt Sinkowitz. He is a associate professor of communication and international studies at Boston College. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking uh, the time out of your day to talk to us. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Justin. Politics! We've got a few straggling news stories here for you, so we are going to wrap up our show by blasting through them. Here's one from Politico. Tom Steyer is now facing backlash specifically in New Hampshire because of how saturated his ad buy is, and specifically on YouTube. They make the point that a lot of the people that watch YouTube the most 
are kids who can't vote. In fact, they begin their article with this little anecdote. Maggie and Libby knew Tom Steyer's ad by heart. I'm going to say two words that will make Washington insiders very uncomfortable. Term limits, they recently chirped in unison at the dinner table. The problem, they're age 10 and 13. A political reporter watching YouTube music videos by Pentatonics, the popular acapella group, had 17 Steyer ads play in over an hour. Now, this does a lot, obviously, for Steyer's name recognition. And since we've tied individual fundraising and polling to access to the debate stage, this is very important. However, (laughs) at a certain point, things do become annoying. And Tom Steyer has spent a ridiculous ridiculous amount of money on digital advertising according to politico 55.6 million dollars worth of advertising with a heavy focus on digital in fact steyer alone has accounted for a third of all political spending from both parties over the last three months and i want to remind you that the trump campaign which is going to be the richest campaign in American history is run by a Facebook ad expert. He is spending that much money on Facebook ads. On a related note, anybody who was watching football over the Thanksgiving holiday noticed that there were, I counted six Michael Bloomberg ads that I saw, so he obviously is trying to buoy his name recognition with that kind of high profile. I mean, like, if you buy the six-pack, I mean, and there was probably more, if you buy that amount, that volume, I mean, those are among the most coveted ad slots. The people that you are competing with to buy those ad slots are companies that depend on the holiday season for their survival. That's who Michael Bloomberg is outspending there. These billionaires, man, they love lighting their money on fire. Let's turn our eyes to Georgia for a second when our old pal Bryant Camp, remember, he of Let Jake Smash fame. Bryant Camp is actually uh, getting heat from the right now. Conservatives are mounting a last-minute pressure campaign to stop Georgia Governor Brian Kemp from appointing businesswoman Kelly Loeffler to a soon-to-be-vacant Senate seat, a move that would come days away from Kemp and Loeffler meeting with President Trump to make the case. Why is Loeffler unacceptable to the Peach State conservatives? Well, because anti-abortion groups, including Concerned Women for America, Susan B. Anthony's List, and March for Life, are formally objecting to her because she used to work for one of the largest hospitals in the Atlanta area. It's a hospital that some of these pro-life supporters call an abortionist training hub. This is a real pickle for Kemp to find himself in. Because I would not have counted on Brian Kemp, of all people, to find himself in a controversy wherein he's being labeled as Soft on abortion, but yet here we are. But if we're already in Atlanta, let's go ahead and stay on 95 North and end up in South Carolina where a The Hill piece, which was obviously written 
just because they need something to fill space on the Friday after Thanksgiving, has this amazing observation. Fears mount about Biden's South Carolina firewall. Oh, oh, who's been saying that? Who's been saying that, huh? Do me a favor. Who's been saying this exact same thing, all right? I just want to let you know, I've been saying this for weeks, that it is foolhardy and ridiculous to believe that anybody can wait until South Carolina, the fourth state to vote, and think that that means anything at all, right? And, and also, let me go back to that Kamala Harris article. Apparently, that was Kamala Harris's plan, too. That she wouldn't really play in Iowa. She wouldn't really play in New Hampshire. She wouldn't really play in Nevada. She was going to wait for South Carolina. Get the hell out of here. But I just want to let you know, this is where we are in terms of analysis of politics right now. Because if you've been listening to me on this show, you have listened to me say this over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to show you where the hill goes for their sourcing on this. Bad losses in Iowa and New Hampshire and some other states could easily hurt Biden, says Julian Zelzer, a professor of public affairs and history at Princeton University. How about Justin Robert Young, the eater of way too much turkey and stuffing last night, who is going to eat yet more turkey the second he is done doing this podcast? How's that for a quote, The Hill? No, duh, are you kidding me? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I gotta calm down, I gotta calm down, gotta calm down. Think of things that make me happy. Think of that turkey, leftover. Mm. I ate a piece cold, first thing in the morning. Oh, so such simple pleasures. I was a little upset. The Mandalorian episode didn't go live last night. I would have loved to watch that. Didn't get a chance to. Instead, watch Toys That Made Us. Didn't get to watch Baby Yoda, though. Baby Yoda taking over. Baby Yoda, all that anybody wants to think of. Baby Yoda, the element of late 2019 pop culture personified and dominating the 2020 race. This according to an article by Shane Savitsky. At Axios, these are the average social interactions per story on 2020 candidates and Baby Yoda. So I'm just going to give you the top four here. Tulsi Gabbard, 523 interactions. This is between November 12th and 25th, 2019. Interactions on Facebook and Twitter. Pete Buttigieg, 600. Joe Biden, 839. And Bernie Sanders tops our list at 850. It is dwarfed by Baby Yoda at 1,671. Now, again, these are one of these stories that only runs because there's nothing else to talk about on the day after Thanksgiving. But it is amazing. To see, you know, comparatively, let, let's go down to some of the, the bottom of the barrel here. Deval Patrick is the least among them, 134. Amy Klobuchar, not so far behind, 
143. Mike Bloomberg, 173. Tom Steyer, 175. I guess when he's not buying his way in front of your face digitally, people don't really have much to talk about Tom Steyer. So, Baby Yoda 2020? I have spoken. All right, we're going to end on this, and it's something that happened before Thanksgiving, but I do want to highlight it here. Michael Harriot of The Root, apparently the only thing that's still functioning like normal on the Gawker network of blogs, wrote, as he is prone to do, if you've never read uh, the, the work of Mr. Harriot, he is a, a, a bomb thrower. That's why he's there. He wrote an article called uh, Mayor Pete is a lying Emmer effort. And so that's not crazy, right? He, he took Mayor Pete to task for repeating something uh, before he got into office that part of the problem with black youth is that they don't have positive role models. And Harriot's point is that if you are in a system of systemic white oppression, that putting the onus on the black children is not only a bad take, it's willfully ignorant, and Mayor Pete should know so. Well, here's what Mayor Pete did. He called Michael Harriet, And Michael Harriet had to write another article about talking to Mayor Pete. And it's a pretty good article. Ultimately, it's not like Harriet's ever going to come out and say, oh, no, now I'm part of the Buddha gang. He's not going to be filming a video of himself doing the high hope stands. But considering that the the other side of it is him just getting roasted, this was a very, very savvy, smart thing for Mayor Pete to do, in my opinion. I think that it was it was exceptionally, it is exceptionally smart for Mayor Pete to come in and get his ass kicked a little bit. Now, it helped that this was all recorded. Harriot did not post the recording himself, but he did give a fairly honest depiction of Mayor Pete saying that he was just going to listen, that mostly Mayor Pete listened. He did not try to challenge him, nor did he try to defend what he was going to say. This is a 10 out of 10 media-savvy win for Mayor Pete. And it is yet another example. And boy, howdy, are you guys going to get tired of me saying this during the Raise the Dead podcast? Conflict. Conflict drives narratives. Conflict drives perception. If you are risk averse, if you are conflict averse, you will always be at the mercy of somebody else who wants to get dirty. It should be the lesson that Donald Trump taught you, and you gotta need you need to do a lot more of that. A lot more of Mayor Pete calling up somebody who just called him a lying MRFer than just having your surrogates push back. This was very smart by Mayor Pete. You wanna know who else is smart? Our Titanic $10 tier at Patreon. We've got A, Squids, Jaime, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Got some cool stuff coming up next week, by the way, doing an interview with somebody that was at 
the Joel Osteen Church when Kanye West came and performed. It is a non-political story that, for whatever reason, is undeniably political. And we're going to talk to somebody who was there. You can go ahead and follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter, at Justin R. Young on Instagram. All right. That about wraps it up. Till next time. I want to remind you that some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And still more talk about politics. But this, friends, is the only show that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>